again. Our text this morning is found in 2 Peter chapter 3, and I'd invite you to stand as I read for you our whopping two verses, and if you think that's too much, it's okay. We're only considering one verse this morning. 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, the apostle Peter continues to write to these scattered believers in Asia Minor. He says, this now, beloved, this is now, beloved, the second letter I'm writing to you in which I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the words spoken beforehand by the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior spoken by your apostles. So ends the reading of God's word. May we be blessed as we study it together. You may be seated. One of the most prolific and profound commands of Scripture is the call to remember. And we are called specifically to remember who God is and what God has done. The first example of remembering that I found in the scripture, however, is that of God himself. God does not call his people to remember without establishing for us that he himself is the God who remembers. In Genesis 9, verses 15 and 16, God said that he would remember the covenant that he made with humanity. He made with Noah and humanity that when he saw the rainbow in the sky, he would remember his promise never to destroy the earth again with a flood. Throughout the Bible, we find God constantly remembering his promises to his people, constantly reminding his people of his remembrance of them. But we also are presented with the constant calls to remember God and his deeds and his commandments. In the Ten Commandments, we find the call to remember the Sabbath, to keep it holy, Exodus 20, verse 8. The people of Israel are called multiple times throughout the book of Deuteronomy to remember that they were once slaves in Egypt and how the Lord God delivered them out of that slavery. Joshua charged the Reubenites and the Gadites and the half-tribe of Manasseh to remember the words of Moses in Joshua 1.13. And in 1 Chronicles 16, verses 12 and 15, as David brings the Ark of the Covenant to the city of David, David called the people to remember his wonderful deeds which he has done, his marvels and the judgments from his mouth. Remember his covenant forever, the word which he commanded to a thousand generations, and that should be up there. In the days of Nehemiah, during a time when Israel's enemies were mocking and taunting, seeking to thwart the very work of God, Nehemiah spoke these words to the people, saying to them in Nehemiah 4.14, When I saw their fear, I rose and spoke to the nobles, the officials, and the rest of the people. Do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your houses. The Psalms are filled with calls for God's people to remember the Lord. And then we read in Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verse 1, Solomon giving this exhortation when he said, Remember also your creator in the days of your youth before the evil days come and the years draw near when you shall say, I have no delight in them. 
unless we think that it's only the Old Testament that calls us to be a people of remembrance, we find Jesus calling the people in Luke chapter 17, verse 23, that great and profound statement, remember Lot's wife. In John 15, 20, Jesus says this, remember the words that I said to you. And then he says, a slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. Remember, Jesus says, the word that I said to you. Of course, there is the regular call to remember the work and person of our Lord Jesus Christ every time we partake of the Lord's Supper. 1 Corinthians 11, verses 24 and 25, where Jesus said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this, how? In remembrance of me. And then in verse 25, the cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. We are to be a remembering people. And I love this last one that I'll give to you, one of my favorite calls to remember, given in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 8. Here's a blessed reminder. Remember Jesus Christ. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, descendant of David, according to my gospel. The point, again, is God's people are called to remember the person and work of the Lord. How well are you doing? And there are times when we need to be reminded to remember. We need this pause. We need to stop everything. We need to, as the psalmist says, cease striving. And can I add a word here? And remember, the Lord is God. We can get ourselves so wrapped up in the things of this earth, can we not? Things of the now seem so so. Uh, important to us. We get so concerned about the immediate that we forget the eternal. Well, in our text this morning, we find Peter pausing. He stops dead in the tracks of his, his, uh, his letter, and he reveals to us his pastoral heart, having just warned his readers of the plight and peril of false teachers that have crept into the church. Peter pauses in order to get his readers' minds back on track, back to considering what is most important. And we can ask, what is most important to Peter? What is it that he would have his readers dwell upon? What is it that he brings his readers back to? In, in the midst of looking at all the troubles that are in the world, all the false teaching that's in the world, all the turmoil that's in the world, what is it that Peter brings these readers back to? And we find that he brings them back. We can see that in verse 2. He says this, You should remember the words spoken beforehand by the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior spoken by your apostles. What is that a fancy way of saying? We need to come back to the word of God. We need to come back to the Old Testament and the New Testament. Beloved, that is simply lofty language calling God's people to remember the person and work of the Lord by the means by which he's given us the blessed means of the word of God. Why do we read the word of God so that I can check it off on the little boxes that says I've read it through a year? Do you know why you read the word of God? So that you might remember your God. That you might remember who you are. 
You might say with David, what is man that you are mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him? You made him a little lower than the angels, yet you've crowned him with glory and honor. David recognizes his littleness apart from God, but he recognizes then the greatness of God and the greatness of what God has bestowed upon him as he believed. Simply put, then, Peter gives his readers something to remember. 2 Peter 3, verses 1 and 2 is this reminder for believers to remember what Peter has already stated to them as well as to remember what he's currently saying. He says, I want you to remember what I've written and I want you to remember what I'm writing to you now. Have you ever done that with your children? You're speaking to them and you can see the blank look on their face. And you can say what? What did I just tell you? And what's the common response? I have no idea. And Peter is kind of taking this pastoral parental pause, and he says, in effect, have you heard what I have been saying to you? He said, do you remember what I've already said to you? And so we have this this recognition that he wants to state now the purpose of this letter. And since the theme of this letter is growing in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, we find in these words Peter's motive. His purpose in writing these words was to get his readers to stop whatever else they were thinking about and remember the Lord. We see this at the end of verse 1. Notice what it says. I am stirring up. I am I'm causing something here to get your sincere mind working and thinking about this reminder. Essentially, Peter did not offer his readers anything that they did not already know. He hasn't told them in this book, as we might read it when they say, wow, I never knew this. Peter's readers, his original readers, already knew everything that he had said. He's not given them, in one sense, anything new. Rather, Peter was bringing what they had already known to the forefront of their thinking. There is a principle at play here, one that we can sometimes balk at, and it is this. We need to be reminded of God's truth again and again, and again. We, not ever, we must not ever grow tired of hearing what God has done and who he is. In fact, I find it fascinating if you read through the Old Testament, God constantly brings to their remembrance, the Israel's remembrance, remember how I delivered you from Egypt. And we can read that and we can kind of think, wow, well, uh, you know, yeah, we get that. But you think about it, it started in Exodus chapter 34 and, and it keeps going on all the way from that 1500 B.C. all the way through the book of Malachi where God says, remember how I've delivered you. Remember how I've redeemed you. Remember how you were slaves. Remember the greatness of what I accomplished on your behalf. And so... We can say when we are reminded over and over again, what's, what's our response? I know, I know, I know. But sometimes knowing something in your head does not translate into living it out in your life. I know that what I'm about to say to you, I'm quite certain most every one of you knows in your head. 
but I'm asking how has it been translated into your living? James would put it this way, but prove yourselves doers of the word. You heard that one before? Need to hear it again? But prove yourselves doers of the word and not merely hearers who delude themselves. There is a difference between hearing and doing, between knowing and living out. And Peter does not want his readers to fall into that trap. Before we look at these words more closely, let me point out something, some interesting considerations. There are some, there are some who have suggested that these two verses are actually misplaced. There are those who would say, why would Peter, near the end of his letter now, kind of kind of put this right in the middle of, of this? It, isn't it more appropriate that rather than stating this purpose here, kind of at the end of his letter, shouldn't you put the purpose at the beginning? I'm writing to you to talk to you about A, B, and C. In fact, if you would look with me, I, I've put it all together. I've taken the liberty to put these verses together. Wouldn't it have read better this way? I think it's up there. We can move along. We read in 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 1 and, and 2, Simon Peter, a bondservant uh, and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have received a faith of the same kind as ours, by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ, grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. This now, beloved, the second letter I'm writing to you, in which I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the word spoken beforehand by the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior spoken by your apostles. Doesn't that read so well? I mean, if I were doing it, that's what I would have thought to do. But they didn't consult me, whoever. Why does it, why is it this way? Why did Peter wait to tell the purpose at this particular juncture? Why is this? I don't know. I honestly don't know. I'll leave that to the good providence of God. Yet there are some who take these verses to suggest that Peter actually wrote a third letter, and that's what this third letter actually is, that somehow it got stuck on to the second letter. In other words, chapters 1 and 2 that we just studied were Second Peter, and now we're actually starting uh, a third letter. But there's no indication that this is so in the text. In fact, as we'll come to see, Second Peter stands as a whole with chapter 3 addressing one of the chief heresies of the false teachers uh, in the days of Peter. And what was the chief heresy that Peter was addressing? He was addressing the certainty of the return of Christ. There were those who were proclaiming that they followed Christ but said, hey, he's not coming back. Where's the hope? In that, we'll see that in the third chapter, the certainty of the return of Christ. But we get ahead of ourselves to suggest that it is strange for a writer to state his purpose for writing towards the end of the letter honestly isn't unusual, particularly in the scriptures. The Apostle Paul wrote to Timothy and stated his purpose for writing him right in the middle of the letter. We read in 1 Timothy 3.15, I write so that you will know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God. So all that he wrote before that was kind of before he ever stated the purpose. John's purpose in writing his gospel is not found at the beginning. 
John starts with the lofty language, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was, was God. He was in the beginning with God. He starts off with this grand uh, statement concerning who Jesus Christ is. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and he launches into uh, the, a whole series of, of, uh, of signs and wonders that Jesus performed. And it's not until we get to the end in John 20, verse 31, that John writes this, But these things have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. He states his purpose. I want you to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, but he sets the stage. He puts out all the evidence. He shows all the glory of Christ and then says, Now you can believe. John is consistent in this in that he does the same thing, stating his purpose in writing his first letter near the end of the last chapter. We read in 1 John 5, 13, five chapters. We're now in chapter 5, verse 13. And John says, these things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God. Why? So that you may know that you have eternal life. Why did John write the, his first letter? So that you may know you have eternal life. It is therefore bad thinking to suggest it is unusual that Peter states his purpose so late in the letter. We have no reason to doubt these words in any way. We need to remember that it was the Spirit of God who moved Peter to write, and this, these verses are right in the place where the Spirit of God intended them to be. And what is the reason? Why did Peter write these in this moment? He wants believers to do what? What do you think? Remember, you're paying attention. This is very clear at the end of verse 1. Read it again with me. I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder. I want you to remember some things. This is not some new or fresh word from God. This is the same old tried truths that have been taught from the very beginning and Peter does not want the old truths to be forgotten. Remember that Peter is being pastoral. Peter is gentle with these words yet there's a firmness that comes out too. He does not call them out saying you bunch of dopes why are you so forgetful? Why am I repeating these things to you once again? Why do I need to tell you these things over and over? We do not get that sense from these words. Peter realizing that we all tend to get wrapped up in the temporal, we get wrapped up in the now, gives encouragement and this exhortation in effect saying, I know that you all have pure and sincere minds, that you greatly desire to seek and to know the truth and so my purpose is to call you to remember. Remember what you have been taught. Remember what you have been told. Remember those truths and live them out. This is the essence of verses 1 and 2 of chapter 3. This is Peter laboring to remind his readers to dwell on the core truths of Scripture, to remember the truths already spoken to them. Now, in our text, we find Peter calling believers to remember four distinctive things, and we're going to consider the first two this morning. And we begin then with our first point. Peter calls them to remember what he has already said. Remember what I have already told you. He says, this is now, beloved, the second letter I am writing to you. 
we notice that Peter speaks about this being a second letter, which indicates that there must be what? A first letter. He says, I've already written you one time. This is the second time that I'm writing to you. We know that he's writing believers who are facing some sorts of trials and persecutions. They're scattered throughout Asia Minor. That's modern-day Turkey, we read in 1 Peter 1.1. And he calls them now to remember the text. I'll point this out to you. He says, I want you to stop and remember that first letter. Now, in our NASB, it may not seem so obvious that that's what he's saying, but that phrase, in which, there, he says, this is the second letter I am writing to you, in which. The in which is plural. It's not singular. It means he has more than one thing in mind. A more literal translation would be, this is now, beloved, the second letter I am writing to you, in both of which I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder. For you English Standard Version fans, and I know we have some, the English Standard Version captures the idea well. It reads this, this is now the second letter that I'm writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder. And all of a sudden, the point becomes obvious. Peter wants his readers to remember what he has already written to them in the first letter, as well as what he's writing to them in the second letter. But we are to begin by recalling then his first letter, what we refer to as 1 Peter. Now, I preached through 1 Peter many years ago, and let me give you a reminder of what that book is about. In 1 Peter, Peter addresses the idea, the twin ideas of suffering and glory, that you will suffer things in this life. Every one of us in this room have suffered something, and if you think you haven't, you will, because it's promised you will suffer. You've lost a loved one. You've had heartache of some kind. There is suffering, but then there's the promise that those who are in Christ will have his glory. That while there is present suffering, even in following Christ now, there is also a coming glory. And we are to remember that the glory that comes with knowing Christ far exceeds any momentary light affliction we may endure on this earth. I believe it would do us well to take some time then, because Peter calls his readers to do this, to remember what he wrote in his first letter, because it's by those truths that he says, I am stirring up your sincere minds. Now, let me quickly tell you that the verb stirring means to fully awaken. It is to arouse the mind. It is to stir something, to stir something up, to raise something up. And what is it that is to awaken our minds, according to this text? The Word of God. How many of you fall asleep when you read the Word of God? And yet Peter says, I want to awaken you by calling you to recall the truths of God's Word. The Word of God. So then, let me remind you of the truths that are to stir up your minds as found in 1 Peter, lest we forget. And remember the theme of suffering and glory. And so we see this theme first fleshed out for us in 1 Peter chapter 1. You can just flip over a couple of pages. And we see this in 1 Peter chapter 1, uh, verses 3 through 5, where we read about the coming glory. 
wonderful verses. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved for, uh, in heaven for you, who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Now, Peter doesn't start off with suffering there, does he? What are those verses referring to? The glory that is the the promised possession of every believer in Christ. If you know Christ, this is your inheritance. This is your, your hope. This is what you get to look forward to, a, an imperishable and undefiled inheritance that will not fade away, kept for you firmly in heaven. You're protected by the power of God. Remember the glory that is promised all those who believe on Jesus Christ. Peter starts it off, starts off that letter with this. It's beyond anything we can experience on this earth. Describe for me something that compares to this promise of glory for the believer. And you will not be able to come up with it. This coming glory is so great it causes us to rejoice and bless the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. This coming glory should cause us not only to rejoice now, but to rejoice, as Peter will go on to say, even in the midst of sufferings and trials. But I said the theme is suffering and glory. We start with glory, but now notice what Peter speaks of in verses 6 and 7. In this inheritance, in this promise, in this hope of eternal life, in this wonder that God has caused us to be born again, in this you greatly rejoice. Even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been what? Distressed by various trials. Now, in verse 7, he kind of goes on and he comes back to the theme of glory to an extent. He says, all of this is so that the proof of your faith being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the coming, at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Even in describing the present suffering, Peter cannot help but speak of the coming glory. You are hurting now. Remember the glory that is yours. You are going through some heartache now. Remember the glory that belongs to you. Peter wants his readers, and the Spirit of God desires for us to remember that the glories to come when Christ's return are so marvelous, so wonderful, that if thought about properly, even though not understood on this side of glory, it will make any suffering on earth nothing more than what Paul refers to as what? Momentary light affliction. Well, Peter continues this theme of suffering and glory, that which he has called his readers to remember. Look at 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. We read this. Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against the soul. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles, so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, 
they may, because of your good deeds as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. Do you see the suffering? There's two sufferings here in this text. It is wearisome to fight the flesh. Sin is an enemy of ours, and we must constantly wage war against the sin in our flesh. It's wearisome as well to be mocked and persecuted by the ungodly. So what is it that allows believers to properly endure such things in the present? Peter wants us to remember, he tells us it is the glory that comes out. Peter reminds the believers that battling against the flesh and sin is the result of the fact that we are now a part of a new realm. We do not belong to this world. Our citizenship is in heaven from where we eagerly await a savior. We belong to a different kingdom. We belong to a different master. We are not of the kingdom or the domain of darkness. We are of the kingdom of God and of light and of truth. Peter calls believers in this verse, this passage, aliens and strangers. Peter's saying, I need you to remember You need to remember this world is not your home. You should not get too comfortable in this place. If you get comfortable, you want to put down roots in this place, and I don't want you there. You are aliens and strangers. This is not your home. You are destined for a better country. You are citizens of heaven. Beloved, we are reminded that we are now, we are living now, In this moment, in light of the glory that will come when God visits us once again. We read in verse 12 of how believers are to respond to suffering that comes from the hands of others. What does he say? Remember to labor and strive in good deeds. Remember that when you're suffering, to continue to labor and strive in good deeds. Why does he say that? So that when Christ does return, they will not be able to point an accusing finger. All they will be able to do is give God glory that God's children responded to them. How? In godliness rather than retaliation. Peter wants us to remember such things. We see the reminders that there will be suffering throughout 1 Peter chapters uh, 2 and 3. Peter Uh, Believers may suffer at the hands of ungodly government, we read. Some believers may suffer at the hands of unreasonable masters. Some believing women may suffer in the midst of a difficult marriage because of an unbelieving husband. But whatever the suffering, Peter calls his readers to always behave how? Properly. Always to, to respond with grace. Even Christ-like even to the point of remembering the life of Christ. When you are suffering, when you are going through the times of sorrow and suffering, the first thing that ought to come to your mind is not, why is this happening to me? The believer ought to say, let me be reminded of how my Savior dealt with suffering. And Peter brings that up in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 21 through 23, saying, For you, believers, 
You have been called for this purpose. Since Christ also, what? Suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps. Well, what was that like, Peter? Who committed no sin. Now I got to wage war against the flesh, don't I? Nor was any deceit found in his mouth. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats. But what did he do, Peter? Remember, he kept entrusting himself to him who judges rightly. My God will vindicate all things in the end. My God will take care of these things in his time. If I try to deal with it, I will just mess it up. And so I will obey my God. I will follow the example of Christ who, while suffering, did not revile in return and uttered no threats, but I will entrust myself to God because he judges rightly. Now, I would remind you that the suffering of Christ was beyond anything that you and I can imagine. Whatever heartaches and headaches Whatever persecutions and trials you and I have ever endured, they do not compare to that which Christ endured on our behalf. The way he composed himself through such suffering then should be nothing short of amazing to us. And it's not as if we get to say, well, yeah, but he was God, it was easy for him. I see no indication in the scripture that it was easy for him. That's a cop-out so as to say, I don't have to seek to follow in his steps. How did he do this? How did Jesus do this? Again, the answer at the end of verse 23, he kept on entrusting himself to him who judges rightly, righteously. Jesus knew God would make everything good and right. Beloved, in the end, we must know that because God has said so, that all will be well, all will be good, all will be right for us because our God is sovereign and our God has promised to those who trust him. Here it is. He didn't say, I'll give you uh, an easy life now, but he did say, you have nothing but glory that awaits you. So endure. You can persevere. Let me offer you one more example of suffering and glory, this theme that Peter desires for his readers to remember from his first letter. We read in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 10, very specifically, notice the ideas of suffering and glory. After you have what? Suffered for a little while. The second time he speaks of suffering for a little while. The God of all grace who called you to his eternal what? Glory in Christ will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. If you know you're going through suffering, rule number one, it's for a little while. Rule number two, God is using this to perfect and confirm and strengthen and establish you as he prepares for you eternal glory in Christ. Both words, suffering and glory, we find them. 
Peter's anticipating the time when all who have trusted Christ, all who remember Christ, will enjoy eternal glory. By the way, let me pause here to say there's only two eternal possibilities. The enjoyment of eternal glory or the suffering of eternal death. And so I pray that as you hear these words, you would be reminded that those are the only two possibilities and ask yourself, what path am I on? The path towards eternal glory in Christ or the path towards eternal death because I am going to live in my flesh. Peter is calling believers to look to that day in the midst of their suffering when Christ will perfect them. The point is this, that until that time comes, there will be suffering for Christ. But Peter puts the suffering into perspective, does he not? In verse 10, he says that suffering will be for how long? How long is your suffering? For a little while. Now, some of us, that's hard to grasp. Some of us have been through some very difficult things that have seemingly lasted forever. They've been seasons of suffering. But do you trust the word of God? That in comparison to eternity, they are but for a little while. It's very easy to say our suffering is for a little while when you're not the one suffering. It's okay, Ken, you're suffering. Be just for a little while. Somebody says that to me, I want to say, shut up, right? Recall holding the hand of a man coming out of withdrawal from drug addiction and telling him to hang on that in a few more hours his life would be his own again. But for him, the agony seemed eternal. But oh, the bliss when he finally gained possession. What is it that can make any suffering in this life be regarded as but a little while? We need to remember, Peter says, I want to stir up your sincere mind by way of reminder to remember the glory that is to come, to remember a glory that promises to make the sufferings you endure in this life but momentary and transit. Eighty years of suffering on this earth can seem like a long time. That is, until you compare it to eternity. As the hymn writer reminds us, when we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, we've no less days to sing God's praise than when we first began. Peter has called his readers to remember what he has first written, and I would charge you with the task of reading through 1 Peter sometime today so that your sincere, genuine mind of faith may be stirred up Awaken to remember the greatness of the glory that awaits believers in Christ. Why would you not want that? Why, what would be more important than to say, God, awaken my soul to the reality that this is not my home and the sufferings of this life are but transient and momentary when I consider that I will spend eternity with Christ. We are to remember that believers are called and promise sufferings and trials in this earth, but then we remember something greater, the promise of the return of Christ who will bring us into his glory. Now, this isn't just Peter that says this. This isn't like Peter somehow had the only track of this thought. In Romans 8, 17, the apostle Paul says the very same things. Notice what he says. The sufferings of this present time 
he writes, are not even worthy to be compared with the what? The glory that is to be revealed to us. And I ask you, have you spent enough time considering the glory that is yours if you are in Christ so that you might endure with patience and endure with grace whatever suffering this world may throw at you. So Peter calls his readers not only to remember his first letter, but now our second point, he not only says, remember what I have said, he's actually saying, remember what I am saying. This now, beloved, the second letter in, I am writing to you in both of which, even now, he says, I am stirring up your mind. I'm awakening you. Both Peter's first and second letters are in view here. What this means is that second Peter, what is it a book about? You can say it in one word, remembering. It's meant to be a book to remember. That's what it's about. It is a reminder. Second Peter is a review. It is a rehearsing of truths that believers already know. What Peter has written to them and was presently writing to them were fundamental, important truths concerning life and eternity. Peter wanted his readers to recall the truths of his first and second letter. This, as I said, is kind of his pause. He just stops in the middle, as it were, of this letter. He's a, it's intended, as I would call it, a spiritual speed bump. What do you do when you see a speed bump? If you're 16 or 17, you speed up, right? And take this with gusto. When you're a little bit older, you kind of say, I don't want to ruin my car and I don't want to throw my body out of whack. So you do what? You slow down and you take it nice and slow. We're called to slow down and to ponder. And so since we have pondered and recalled to mind some of the truths of Peter's first letter, let us pause and recall to mind some of the truths we've already reviewed in the second letter. It is my desire that when you come to 2 Peter, that this phrase would constantly pop up in your mind. I am to grow in the grace and knowledge of my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. That's 2 Peter 3.18. That's the aim of Peter's uh, letter here. The whole letter is aimed at the goal of growing in the grace and knowledge of Christ. And so I call you to remember 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. Where, what do we read there? Seeing his, Christ's divine power, has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. And we are reminded, beloved, that everything that we need to grow in the grace and knowledge of Christ, everything we need is provided. We do not need, as some false teachers are so profound to say, or so, so often to say, I have some new teaching. I have a fresh word from the word of God. Don't give me a fresh word because that's not the word. I will stand upon the word that God has already given. I do not need someone's dreams or impressions. I'm not concerned about some new revelation that has been given. We do not need another experience except this one the new birth, of being regenerated in Christ, of having eyes and hearts open and receptive to this one 
reality, the person and work of Jesus Christ on your behalf. And that should all lead to one goal. How do I know that I know Jesus Christ? I'll make it simple for you. Do you obey him? If you obey Christ, you are on the path of knowing him. If you are disobeying Christ, you don't know him. Everything necessary for life and godliness, for obedience and righteousness, for eternal life, is found in one person, Jesus Christ. Peter wrote this letter, and everything we have already considered to remind us of this key aspect of the spiritual life. And let me remind you, when you feel weak, when you feel used up, when you feel washed out, when you feel like you've got nothing left, that's okay, but you need to remind yourself, I have everything I need in Christ. You can come to the end of yourself, but you will never get to the end of Christ. We have all things in Christ, we are told. No one is able to separate us from the love of God that we have in Christ Jesus, we are told. We need to know this. We need to be reminded of this. And I need to remind you and you need to remind me of that truth over and over again. From this day forward. And sometimes we need to be reminded of it because we are so saturated in the temporal, we need to hear it not just day by day, but we need to hear it moment by moment until we get it right, until we get it down. And then we'll still need to hear it. We have a world that screams the opposite. It screams about enjoying the now, about living in the now, about just doing what your flesh desires now. A world that mocks dependency upon Christ, mocks uh, uh, dependency upon the word in favor of what? what? What is the substitute for the sure and steady and eternal word and work and person of Christ? Well, the world says, give yourself over to the ever-changing, ever-fickle, increasingly evil mindset that doesn't produce affection. It only produces what? What do we see the world producing? Animosity, discord. The children of Israel who saw the mighty hand of God who plagued the Egyptians with plagues and miracles, who saw the visible manifestation of, of the Lord's presence in the form of a pillar of cloud of fire to separate them from the hostile pursuit of the Egyptians, who saw the Lord with their own eyes part the Red Sea that they traveled through on dry ground, who saw with their eyes God protect them by destroying Pharaoh and his army, drowning them in the sea. It is these same children who immediately began to grumble and complain about temporal things. What are we going to eat? Where are we going to get water? And all that kind of nonsense. Because they forgot God. They didn't remember the God who manifested himself in the way that he did. The God who parted the Red Sea. How could that God not provide them food and water? And yet they complained in the present. 
because they only looked at their present and they forgot to remember what God had already done. Everything Israel needed pertaining to life and godliness was provided by God. But they forgot that. And now Peter says, I need you to remember that everything you need to live for Christ has been provided by Christ. And yet what do we do? It's too hard following Jesus. It's hard reading my Bible. It's hard praying. Because we forget. In his book, Called The Roots of Endurance, John Piper recounts the lives of John Newton, Charles Simeon, and William Wilberforce. Most of you are familiar with John Newton, former slave trader and author of the hymn Amazing Grace. And William Wilberforce, of course, a British politician who led the movement to abolish slavery throughout the British Empire. All three were British men who, upon trusting Christ, then faced trials, many trials, and they faced those trials according to the testimonies of others with incredible patience and endurance. But what was it that was, enabled them to endure the trials that would come as they renounced the sinful ways of the world and embraced Christ? Piper lays out the fact that these men were committed to spending time in the word of God and in prayer daily. They kept Christ at the center of everything they did. And the application is clear. If we will keep Christ at the center of all that we do, if we will keep Christ at the center of all that we think and say, the inevitable result is perseverance through times of trial and suffering. Perseverance like that of John Newton, Charles Simeon, and William Wilberforce. Beloved, this is the message of 2 Peter. Those men endured because they kept reminding themselves of all that they had in Christ, and all that they had in Christ was all that they needed. We read then, <clears throat> we read of the lives of Paul. We read of the lives of, of Peter. We can read of the lives of Luther and Calvin and Edwards or D. Martin Lloyd-Jones, and we see that these men knew something. They knew everything they needed was in Christ. And what made them so great? One thing. They knew they had everything in Christ, and so they embraced all those things. And they appropriated them. And they lived by them. Now let me tell you something. I hope you're ready for this. Everything that they had in order to do great things for Christ, we have the exact same things here today. You do not lack one resource that those great men of the faith possessed. As believers, the only thing that hinders us from doing great things for Christ is ourselves, our lack of faith, our timid trust, and I need to remind you that there's not one saint in this room that is given any more or any less of Christ. You either have Christ or you don't. 
you either possess the same Christ as Paul and Peter, the same Christ as Calvin or Knox, the same Christ as Lloyd-Jones, or you don't have Christ at all. And so then I remind you to grow in the grace and knowledge of Christ. If you have trusted Christ to save you from your sins, then let me remind you that you have everything you need to grow in him. Look at 2 Peter 1, and let me remind you again in in verse 1, Christ has given you faith. In verse 2, he's given you grace and peace. In verse 4, he has given you his precious promises. So according to verse 3, you have what? Everything. You need to remember this. But it begs a question as we close. Are you growing? Are you growing in the grace and knowledge of Christ? And that's why I remind you what Peter says at the beginning of verse 5, if you look in 2 Peter 1. We've hit these verses so often, but he says, Now for this very reason also. What reason is that, Peter? Because you have been granted everything necessary to grow in Christ and to glorify Christ and be godly in Christ. Because you have everything in Christ, applying all diligence in your faith, supply moral excellence, and in your moral excellence, knowledge, and in your knowledge, self-control, and in your self-control, perseverance, and in your perseverance, godliness, and in your godliness, brotherly kindness, and in your brotherly kindness, love. Peter says, I want to remind you what the true Christian looks like. What true Christian growth looks like. What genuine faith in Christ looks like. And we must be relentless with ourselves and we must be encouraging and stimulating to one another to say, if we don't see these things, we're not appropriating everything we have in Christ. We need not be a sick and anemic body for the Lord. We have everything necessary. This is what it looks like. And we need to be reminded. We we need to grow in moral excellence. That is Christ-likeness. We grow in knowledge of who Christ is and what he has done. We grow in self-control. By the way, that means increasingly abstaining from those fleshly lusts which wage war against your soul. We need to grow in perseverance, see that the present sufferings of this world are but momentary light affliction. We need to grow in godliness, that is, we're following the ways of God, not the ways of this world. We will grow then in brotherly kindness, mutual affection for believers. We will love the saints, and then we will grow in love, that act of the will and affection of the heart that seeks the highest good for others, regardless of the cost and all to the glory of God. Yes, dear believers, I stand here today in this pulpit to remind you that you possess everything, all of these things in Christ. You need not try to find them outside of Christ because they're not there. And so I stir up your mind to remember that it is not that we merely possess these things and therefore we sit back and just kind of try to coast into the kingdom. Peter reminds us that we must be applying all diligence, all maximum effort to see these things flourish in our faith and in one another's faith. What happens when we remember these things? 
What happens when we set out to do these things? We find the answer in verses 8 and 9. Let me remind you again of these truths. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For he who lacks these qualities is blind or short-sighted, having forgotten his purification from his former sins. Let me remind you that if you are growing, then according to the word of God, (laughs) I love it, you're useful. If you're growing, you're fruitful. If you're not growing, you're useless. If you're not growing, you're fruitless. If you're not growing, you're blind and forgetful. Did you catch that? You've forgotten to remember. This is the message of 2 Peter. Peter never tires, though, of reminding readers of these truths, and so I won't tire of it. In 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 12 and 13, notice what he says. Therefore, I will always be ready to remind you of these things. I will always be ready to remind you of these things. Pastor, I've already heard you at least a dozen times talk to me about 1 Peter chapter or 2 Peter 1, verses 5 through 7. Well, I will always be ready to remind you of these things, even though you already know them and have been established in the truth which is present in you. I consider it right as long as I'm in this earthly dwelling to stir you up by way of reminder, knowing that the laying aside of my earthly dwelling is imminent, uh, as also our Lord Jesus Christ has made clear to me, and I will also be diligent that at any time after my departure, this is my goal, that even if I'm gone, you will be able to recall to call these things to mind that sounds very similar to what we've read in our text in chapter 3 verses 1 and 2 Peter's saying in effect that God's people need to be reminded and therefore he would always be willing to make every effort he will actually sometimes make uh, make you irritated because he's going to say the same truths over and over again since Peter repeated this twice this priority it compels us to spend time to remember. In 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 16 through 19, consider what Peter is reminding his readers, what we are being reminded of this morning, that we are to allow to stir our minds. In verse 16, we find the sufficiency of Scripture, that the apostles did not follow fabricated fairy tales. In verse 17, he reminds them that the apostles were actually eyewitnesses to the majesty of Christ on the Mount of Transfiguration. In verse 18, he reminds them that not only were they eyewitnesses, they were earwitnesses as they heard God the Father himself speak of the the, uh, approval of the Son. In verse 19, we're told that believers possess the prophetic word that is even more sure than the experience that those apostles had when they saw Jesus transfigured. The word of God is more certain, more sure. Read it, delight in it, know it, don't forget it. In 2 Peter 2, we found Peter describing the character and flaws of false teachers, those who profess a faith, but it was not a faith that was growing as described in 2 Peter 1, verses 5 through 7. Rather than following Christ, these men lived as those denying the master who bought them. And as a result, once again, they became entangled in the defilements of the world, chapter 2, verse 20. And they had turned away from the holy commandment handed down to them, verse 21. Beloved, their faith never grew, 
because it was never true faith in Christ. Some of you may be in here and you profess a faith, but you're not growing. You need to renounce that faith and pray God bring you true faith in Christ. We are reminded of the danger of not growing in the grace and knowledge of Christ. It will lead to doom. It leads to death and destruction. And so the lesson of 2 Peter then is this. We must be always growing in the grace and knowledge of Christ, lest we reveal that our faith is dead, that our dead faith leads to nothing but death itself. Considering the list of activities in 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 5-7, through 7, that, led to an assur- that leads to an assurance of salvation, I ask you, how are you doing? What areas do you lack the most? I need you to spend time to identify, do I lack in some of these things? And pray that the Lord would grant you an increase. How do I do that? Take time to read your Bible regularly and note of what you're being reminded of. You know that every day you read your Bible, it's actually God reminding you of truth. And then be faithful to remind other of the things that you've been reminded of. I'm a firm believer that whatever I'm reading, guess what? You're going to hear it. If you have found yourself to be woefully lacking in that list, not finding joy by uh, joy, but rather fear in being reminded of these things, consider if your knowledge of Jesus is nothing but superficial rather than spiritual whether you simply have a knowledge about Jesus that produces no real change of heart or mind that leads to death, or whether or not you truly know Jesus as Lord and Savior, the lover of your soul and the changer of your life. If you are concerned that you only know about Jesus, then I would ask you to come and talk to me or talk to one of the elders. Let's get that rectified. That needs to be remedied, and we'll be glad to show you how that's done, that you may truly know Christ. And so what I've sought to do today is to stir you up, awaken you by way of reminder. And I pray that you would go and see yourself awakened. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for the time of this study. We thank you that you desire us to be a people who remember, who stop, cease our striving, and know that you are God. I pray, Father God, that those of us who take that time will see the areas in which you are seeking to impart to us more of those qualities that Peter lays out for us in his text, that we would be a people who seek to remember these things and to remind other of others of these things. And I pray for the souls that are here today hearing these words, and they are not certain that any of these qualities that we've talked about from Second Peter 1 are theirs. I pray that you would stir their soul to cry out, to know what it means to be saved. May they seek someone that would help them through that that process. And so, Father, we commit all of this to you and thank you for your amazing grace. In Jesus' name.